Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. If you've been listening for a long time, you know how much I admire and find hugely interesting at every turn. Our next guest, uh, he continues to grow in a way that I've found fascinating. I've told you before about his quests, his journeys through meditation, through Chinese medicine, through yoga, through Ayurveda, through I'm forgetting some. And we'll talk to him about some of those things in a second. But he's become a bit of a life coach. I have found that like John Amici, Ricky Williams has a way of reaching people and it's an unusual grouping of people who are open-minded and tend to be looking for something, searching for something, and they tend to arrive at his doorstep. Ricky, am I saying anything that is wrong so far? Because you connect in a very spiritual place with people that feels like you're meeting them for the very first time and that you know each other a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that, that part is accurate. I mean, I don't know if I'm comfortable with I don't know why, but I don't know if I'm comfortable with life coach. Um, yeah. Why not? I, you've done some learning. This is the reason that I bring it up. The reason I say life coach is because I find that the people who are most moved by your teachings, the people who learn from you, you might not like it because there's too much ego in life coach, but that that's what they're searching for. They're looking for a little bit of help from someone who's crawled through it and now has some wisdom on the other side. Yeah. You know, I, I think. You know, the, the people that I enjoy coaching the most and I think that can get the most out of working with me are people that are, are not, you know, just trying to get their life on track. But these are people that are like trying to achieve to achieve something like incredible. I mean, I, I think of the idea of coaching. I'm a big believer that if you're coaching someone in something, you you should have had some kind of success in, in doing that. And I think of what I what I've been able in my life to become successful at is being the best in, in the world at something. And so for me, the people that I that I want to work with are people that have aspirations to be great. Otherwise, I'm probably going to push them too hard. The pushing too hard. It's non-confrontational, right? Uh, you're testing them. You're talking about emotionally and spiritually, but I don't I, I can't even imagine you. Maybe I. I know a different version of you. I can't. When's the last time you had a legitimate confrontation? Well, I mean, you know, I can use our relationship as an example. I'm sure there's ways that I, you know, that I, I pushed you and, and I, I shouldn't say too hard. It's just, you know, like for me, the, the aim is greatness and like, okay, what are we waiting for? And, and I realized that to achieve our great, to achieve greatness, you know, we have to, we have to tiptoe, we have to walk through the, our own, you know, shadows of darkness to get there and so that's what i mean when i mean push people too much just push people to deal with their shit before they're actually ready to well when did you discover how did you discover that you were a vessel for these things uh because it just kept happening you know I, <laughs> people would come around me and their life would fall apart and 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 it was a negative thing and then i kind of started to realize okay, this seems to keep happening. How can I turn it into a positive thing? 
And so I started to, to move in that direction. And now I, I realize that it's true to become the best, you know, you have to face, you have to face your, your own darkness. So explain to me what you're talking about when you say people arrived and their lives fell apart, that you were there to instigate some sort of change, some sort of change that they themselves may not have known that they needed or were too afraid to confront, but that you were there as a vessel yeah. to instigate some sort of doom. But from the outside, that could be viewed right as, well, he's just being irresponsible or he's being a young athlete or a dummy or whatever it is that people would assign to those things. What do you mean there when you say people arrived? Well, and, well it's, it's, it's funny you say that because, you know, there is kind of a scapegoat type of vibration to this thing. And typically the things that snap us out of our uh, slumber or out of our unconsciousness are things that are outside the norm, you know? And so if I'm playing that role of the person to, you know, wake people up, then, you know, I'm going to wear the mask of the irresponsible athlete and, and all of these things. And so, and I think that's part of it is I'm, I'm willing to really do whatever it takes. And so I'm willing to be, you know, the nice guy or, or the asshole or whatever, whatever. Why is it important to you? How is it important to you to challenge people's belief systems? Mm -hmm. Well, if again, if I'm in the role of life coach, um, you know, and I'm pushing people to, to achieve, you know, their, their own greatness, that becomes, that's a major part of the, that's a major part of the process. And I've been through it myself and I, I know it's scary and it's, you know, it's frightening. And also I know that it's exhilarating. And so I think as I work with people and they can sense it because I've been there, it's, it's helpful. And, you know, and I think there's this, this saying that it's, it's lonely at the top. And I don't mean this in an egotistical way, but it's like, you know, I'm looking for playmates. And, you know, I think that's why long time ago that you and I connected because we both, you know, function at kind of the same level of appreciating, you know, that sometimes you got to go through the darkness. I remember talking to you about about writing, you know, and you would tell me about the process you go through when you're when you're writing a story. And, and I could relate to that, you know, the going into the depths and the darkness and having to wrestle with what's there, but realizing that it can become so productive when we're able to do that. How did this stuff roil inside you when you were playing football or was it all, were you too young and there were too many distractions to actually spend much time thinking about the spiritual elements you would find after you decided, okay, I'm going to keep going on this quest outside of the huddle. Well, I think I just was looking, I was looking in the, I was looking for the same thing that I, you know, that I'm looking for now, but I was looking in the wrong places. You know, I was looking for something that was real and something that had depth and intensity and football offered some of those things. You know, my romantic liaisons offered some of those things, but you know, there, there was no connection to what I would call spirit in those things. And I think that's what was, that's what was lacking. And so I think as I brought, spirit into my life, you know, I was more able to integrate all these different parts of myself and see, because part of spirit is, is spirit is what connects everything. And so when we connect to spirit and when I connected to spirit, I could see how every, where everything fit uh, and life started to make more sense. When and how did spirit arrive? <laughs> well, it, it, and often when it arrives, you know, the first time it arrives, it brings a, a disturbing message. And for me, it arrived 
you know, 2004. Uh, and Spirit arrived and said, hey, you know, maybe you're not here to be a professional football player. Maybe there's something else that you're called to do. And, you know, I kind of listened, listened enough to, to get away from football and start to travel and realize, wow, there are other things that I'm interested in, other, other gifts that I have to bring to the world. And I started to follow that and my life started to make more sense. And it's been so much easier. Life is so much easier when, when you're open and connected to spirit. So take us through that afterlife. So you leave football and you're free, but you're also scared and you loved football, but you never really fit in that world beyond your athletic excellence because all of this stuff, it doesn't really work in that world. I don't know how welcome all of this stuff is, although maybe I'm being too stereotypical on that. Well, I think at a young age, I I grew accustomed to being the outsider. And so I was just used to it, you know, and, and, and I just assumed that, you know, that's what life felt like being, being different than everyone else. And then I think as a football player, I just realized, okay, I'm tired of feeling different. You know, maybe I need to go find a place where I don't feel so different. And for me to find that place, yeah, I had to, had to travel around the world and, and realize that I, you know, underneath the football player facade, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a mystic, I'm a, I'm a hippie and, that's a real part of myself, an important part of my, and a philosopher, an important part of myself that I had been, you know, starving, neglecting, and it needed to be, it needed to be fed. And I think, you know, the way that we're raised and the way life goes, there's certain parts of who we are on the inside that get, are easily expressed, you know, like my football and my, my athletic ability, it fit well with my environment. And so that's what was nurtured. And there are other parts of myself you know, that didn't fit well with being, you know, African an African-American male. And those parts were, uh, again, they weren't nurtured. And so I, I got into a, a point in my life where I realized, again, spirit is where we see how everything goes together. So when we engage in spirit, it requires us to, to invite those discarded, rejected parts of ourselves back into the fold, back, back into the party. How hard is it, Ricky, with fame and with money and with life change and with youth to invite spirit or have time for it? Once you reach superstardom, like, is there even time? You have to be active and conscious at a very young age to wander away from those temptations that kids like and be like, no, I'm going to concentrate on the things in life that really matter. Yeah, I'm not sure you're supposed to be too engaged with spirit when you're when you're young because then you don't get enough of life experience, you know. And I think you know connecting to spirit is is a graduation when you've not mastered, but but when you've become successful on the earthly plane, right? Then you're ready to move into spirit. I think it's I think it's a rite of passage, and I think you know kids that get involved in drugs too early, these are people that get lost. You know, there's a tendency to get lost in, in spirit. So I think there is a need to establish uh, ourselves on the earth with some kind of earthly success so that we know we can handle spirit because, you know, it can easily carry us away. And so I think for me, at a young age, I established, you know, some kind of earthly success as a football player. And, And I guess I was moving fast and I was ready to graduate to what was next, but probably earlier than what we're used to seeing people in our culture, especially athletes, especially African-American athletes. 
So take us through it. So you leave. And now here the quest begins. And initially you feel free. And, you know, I've said it before because I didn't even mention astrology, but you have really been on a search, a quest across the land that is here for a higher spiritual plane. That's the quest that you left football to look for. Take us through where it's taken you. And I know that's so, a, I know it's a broad question. No, no, it's, it's fine. So, you know, at that point when I, when I gave up football, what I, that's what I gave up my quests and I'm a quester. And, and, uh, and I think, uh, I think my quest to be the best football player I could be is evidence that I'm pretty good at it. So that was where I put all my energy. And then once I accomplished that check, I needed a new place to put it and I put it in ex exploration. And so it was a, it was a literal quest and I retired from the NFL and almost immediately I felt this huge weight come off my shoulders. And I almost felt like I, you know, gained 50 IQ points. I just became really wise, really wise, you know, almost instantaneously. And in that wisdom, I, you know, I knew I needed to travel. I needed to, to experience the world and, and get out there. And so I did. And I mean, it was the most alive I felt my whole life. It was like every morning I woke up and just really open to what the cosmos, what the universe was pushing me towards. And I just followed that. And it led me to some really amazing places. You know, it led me to all around Australia. It led me to Northern California to study Ayurveda. It led me to the yoga ashram, led me to astrology, it led me to India to study yoga and really, <clears throat> and really, you know, take that journey to a deeper level and to put uh, theories and ideas behind my experiences. And I, I really dove into that life at, you know, as deeply, if not more deeply to, to how I dove into football. And so I was able to absorb a tremendous amount of t teachings, knowledge, wisdom in that year that I spent away. And one of the pieces of wisdom that I came across was a term in Sanskrit called Dharma. And this idea that we're all here for a purpose and that purpose, if we follow it, you know, leads to a fulfilling life. And that sometimes, most of the time, you know, if you, any of the, the Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, any of these big epics of a journey, you know, it's obvious, right? There's times where you're about to get smushed, right? Or you're about to fall off of a cliff, right? And then somehow you believe in yourself and you save the day. And that's, that's really what, you know, what, what my life felt like. But it also had that rewarding feeling of moving towards uh, my dharma, accomplishing something. And that led me back into the NFL. But I had tools and I had a level of freedom that I didn't have during my first stint in the NFL. And, and, the, journey, and the journey continued. And it was, and it, you know, it was like I, I went to the top of the mountain and, you know, and got the tablets of my life. And I came back down to see how to implement them. Um, and that's really been the process in my life the past 16 years. What do you regard as the period of greatest learning? The greatest period of learning was really the greatest period of unlearning. And it was that year off where I didn't have any external authority telling me what I was supposed to do or what I had to do. So it allowed me to open up to a, a higher authority. And it was learning, but it was really more like downloads, you know, and sometimes it would, you know, I'd be in a bookstore and a book would fall off of a shelf, you know, it was just these synchronistic moments that kept occurring over and over again. And again, it felt more like I was downloading 
information than it was actually learning something new. Well, you used the phrase higher learning, and that is something that people are going to associate with you in both ways, right? The double entendre of uh, marijuana helping you seek and find a higher plane. So when you say really wise, I became instantaneously really wise. What was happening there? How did that happen? You're saying because with the freedom of, from the shackles of football, with your true calling, you're in the Australian wilderness and you're like, okay, I can become really wise because I, I was chasing the wrong things. My belief system was entirely upside down. My system of rewards was entirely upside down. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good point. So, you know, I think it, it comes down to identity and, you know, that a lot of the time, all of us, I think, we identify ourselves the way that our parents, our family, our culture taught us this is who we are. But oftentimes that has little to do with who we truly are. And I think, so for me, identifying as a football player, identifying as a male even, identifying as an African-American, identifying as all these things, you know, I took on certain qualities that maybe weren't part of who I actually was. And there are certain parts of who I was that I actually pushed away. And I think when I de-identified with everything it meant to be a professional football player and everything I did to, to accomplish that goal, right, it allowed, it allowed those false identifications to leave and it created a vacuum for something more authentically me to, to show up. And the way I looked at the world completely changed. I mean, people Chris Jones from from uh, Esquire, you know, when he reached out to me, he said, you know, I want to do an interview for for uh, Esquire magazine. And when I wrote back, I said, I'm not a football player anymore. I'm just a dude, you know. And so if you want to come hang out, come find me and we'll have a conversation, you know. And, and that's where I was at that time. This de-identification allowed me to actually become who I, who I was meant to be. For those who don't remember, though, you're saying the story of you at that point were sleeping in a camp barefooted $7 a night in a tent, right? Like that's the time period in your life that you're talking about. You jumped totally off the cliff. Sort of kind. I wasn't trying to jump off of the cliff. That's just where I was led. Um, and I was at a, at a point where I, again, I had given up my identity. And I think so much of our lives, we, you know, we try to create a life, right? And that's, you know, I have the, the attractive spouse and the good job and the kids that behave, right? We want a life. And, and that's what I had done, right? I had this image of what a life was. And I created that and realized this is fucking boring. And I was seeking more of living, right? Living, which is dynamic. It's about process. It's about growth. It's about evolution. And I started to, to move in that direction and embody that, that more as a as a lifestyle. And that's the path that it took me down that for me, truly living was living close to nature, right? It was walking barefoot on the ground. You know, it, it was going to bed when the sun went down and waking up at, at sunrise. You know, it, that's what it was for me that that's what equated living for me at that point in time. And how free were you there? Where are the feelings of greatest freedom over the last 20 years for Ricky Williams? Well, you know, I think once you find freedom, right, I think you find it in the outside to find it in the inside. And I think once I, I gave myself permission to be free from other people's expectations, from the need for money and security and all those other things that I use to keep me from feeling free, um, then freedom became an internal state. And now 
you know, regardless of what I'm doing, I feel free because I know and people know that if I don't like what I'm doing, I'm quick to say, fuck you and do something else. And so, you know, I feel like every moment in my life, you know, I'm doing exactly what I what I'm feel free to do. This Ricky Williams looks back on the kid who was wearing a helmet while doing interviews and sort of trying to make his way through this world, hugely uncomfortable in ways like the more you tried to hide, the less you could. And you look back at that kid and what do you want to tell him with the life experience you have now? What do you what do you see when you look at that kid like that kid was he was identified or classified as social anxiety disorder and he was medicated as well. And I don't think that this Ricky Williams would want that in his life. Well, again, I, I can't I can't say that, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a, a place where I acknowledge that that to me, freedom means choice, right? That I'm aware that whatever I'm doing, I have a choice, okay? That's freedom. And so I'd look at that, Ricky, and I'd realize, I didn't realize that I had a choice. And if if I could go back, I'd pick that Ricky, I'd take the helmet off and I'd grab him by the hand and I'd say, let's get out of here, right? I'd say, let's get out of here. That's what I'd say. Maybe you can come back later if you feel like it, but right now, let's get out of here. You don't need to be here right now. Wow, Ricky, I never knew that you looked at it that way. So you would have gone back to like the 22 or 24-year-old or the rookie you. So you're going back to Texas, right? You come back to Texas for your senior year, and you you made that decision at the podium. You A very dangerous decision. You you shouldn't have done that. It, anybody would tell you that that was financially not the wisest thing. And even this Ricky, soulful and spiritual, might look back at that young man and say, you know what, that's a very dangerous game. I was playing with my body. The body hurts a great deal. I need to be more careful about this and you went up to the press conference podium and then right there you were going to go pro and then you say never mind i'm coming back for my senior year and right after that would you have been done what right after no, that? No, no, no. i would have come back i would have won the heisman and then after winning the heisman you know i would have said okay let's take a break let's you know we've always wanted to travel and see europe let's just take it let's just take a trip and see what happens Let's just take a trip because honestly, and you, you were there, you were there firsthand. That was my attitude. I just pretended to play the NFL game and it backfired, right? They took it as he doesn't care. And for me, I needed a, like, I needed a trip. I needed a break and I didn't allow myself to fully take that break. And until several years later, when I finally took it. I didn't realize that that was such a sort of seismic moment in your life. I didn't realize that you had the tug of, let me see the world. I'm being called someplace else. I, I had no idea back then that you were wrestling with the idea of, do I want this to be my identity for the next 10 years? How would I know that? Well, I mean, because the, the pressure from the outside of, of course, you want this to be your identity for the rest of your life was so strong. You know, and I couldn't hear the whispers of my soul saying, dude, you know, like you've accomplished a lot, like take a break and enjoy yourself a little bit. And so there was how much in terms of take a break and enjoy yourself once you get on that treadmill, once you start that sprint of here I go straight into the fame machine. Let's see where I end up in 10 years. Yeah, there wasn't much of that. I mean, I think it was it was squeezed in between and because it was squeezed, it was, you know, it was intense, you know, intense physical, sexual relationships, you know, intense spending, you know, just in, intensity to try to, to try to squeeze the, the joy out of life to remind myself, okay, why am I doing this? 
Were you unhappy? I guess so, right? Like you, you, and and probably not realizing why you were unhappy because this has been what you had wanted all your life. This is what you're talking about with the change of belief systems, right? You arrive at success, and you're like, well, wait a minute, I was defining success all wrong. Yeah, I mean, well, it was success, but I, I was defining what success meant. You know, I thought success fit, meant you made it, but success just means okay, now you have to like find something else you want to be successful at. You know, because the idea, right, the idea is you once you are successful in the NFL, that the whole idea is play as long as you can. Right. That's the that's the mythology. And I, I, you know, unconsciously bought bought into it where really, you know, my attitude that and I would tell this to NFL to people coming up with NFL aspirations is may try to get really clear on what you want to do with your life after football and think about, okay, how can my love for football and this ability help me achieve those goals? And then you'll know when it's time to go because you'll be, those goals will be achieved and you'll be ready to move on. The audience should know that Ricky Williams has a podcast, curious questions. He interviews guests about their lives, about their interests. He uses astrological charts as his guide. I do want to talk about some of the things he's doing with astrology these days because he is a quester and he really is someone who can give you wisdom if you wish to have it and wish to think a little bit. Or you could just dismiss him as a kooky weirdo uh, from the marijuana farm and that you've gotten, you've outgrown all of that, right? Like that, you're profoundly indifferent about how that lands on anybody because whatever their criticisms are of you, you have grown to know yourself and become more comfortable because Ricky, you as a football player, it's easy to see now looking back on that, Ricky, wait a minute, he was never comfortable in his own skin. It's easier, much easier now to look at you and see where you've been and what you've traveled through and the light that you felt in your life. And you're just, you wear it. You look much more comfortable. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny. As I've become more comfortable with myself, I have greater understanding of why I was so uncomfortable trying to be myself because I'm a really fucking weird dude. Right. And and I know that me being myself for most conventional people is going to make them extremely uncomfortable. And I had to get comfortable making other people uncomfortable. And so now, again, I actually learned to to embrace it a little bit. I know people that spend any you know decent amount of time with me. They have to let go of a lot of preconceived ideas, not only about me, but, you know, about other people that look, dress, act, whatever, like I do. And and I I like that now. It's become something that I that I embrace and that I've had to learn to embrace in order to feel comfortable in my own skin. That feels like one of the first conversations we had, though, about, I mean, that might have been when you were 19 years old talking about like, yeah, I'm weird. People think I'm weird. I'm trying to get comfortable around around weird and uh, but that was me that was me you know weird and i was only aware of maybe 10 percent of my weirdness and as i became more aware i become aware of just how weird i am but the gift of that is i'm not the only person all of us are way more weird than we than we allow ourselves to be and i feel if i can give permission to help people give permission to themselves to be a little bit more weirder that the world is going to be so much more interesting let's repress certainly right <laughs> exactly exactly and the, the the sad part is some people think that's a bad thing which part the world being less repressed is a bad thing you arrived at being able to define joy where along the path mm, i think i was always able to define joy uh i think part of it was 
how much joy do I did I think I deserved? And which, you know, led to issues around, you know, where do I prioritize joy? And, and I think, you know, deeper than that is how do I about it? To me, a lot of it comes down to definitions, right? And I think I, I meant, you know, you text me earlier and I said really talking about questioning our belief systems, because I think at the core of everything we do, all the ways that we perceive the world are our belief systems. And so thinking about what my, what were my belief systems around joy? And I believed it was something that you had to work your ass off to earn. And, but, and I believe that once you worked your ass off to earn it, it would always be there. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> why do, why do we hold up? Why do we cling to those belief systems that way, Ricky? How much of the psychology of that have you explored? A, a lot. I think we, I think we cling to belief systems um, because they're safe, right? If, Right. This is this feeling of, of we want to know that we're right in a belief system. Right. Allows us to at least have the, the the sense that we're right. It's just unfortunately, most of our belief systems are that somehow we're fucked up. And so we're always right that somehow we're fucked up. And so when, when I stopped buying into that belief system and I allowed, you know, joy to be a, more of a part of my belief system, then more joy showed up. And, I and, you know, it really is that simple. Well, this is more complicated. How do you define God? I like the word universe. It's because it, it implies oneness. And God is that uh, cosmic order. That's how I define God. It's cosmic order. What did you get from yoga? What at the at the highest places, what did you get from that practice? So, I mean, you know, this idea of universe oneness, yoga means union. It means union. And I got a felt sense. You know, yoga is the aim, it's oneness, it's, but it's also the means. So all the different yogic practices from breathing exercises to asanas or physical postures um, to Vedanta, which is the, the philosophical arm, um, it's all meant to, to help you feel at one. And I think the oneness that we're familiar with is the idea of body, mind, and soul. And so yoga helped me have the actual lived experience uh, of more alignment and a tool and a way to practice that on a daily basis. Because, you know, we wake up and we're bombarded by all these images that really aim to separate us. And so it's helpful to have a daily practice to, to remind ourselves that, that we are one with our environment and we are one with the people in our lives. I'm frankly amazed when I talk to you and you're not physically broken from what it is that you had to do for a living in the NFL. These things that you do through medicine have eliminated your pain in some ways. Which are the most healing, like the stilling of the mind, the oneness with the body, the Ayurveda, the massage? Like you seem to be in a place where you are remarkably healthy given the beating, the unholy beating you took in football. Well, I think it, I think it's all of it. I think the you know the meditation is about perspective, right? And I think you know in many spiritual practices. Uh, one of the core meditations is meditating on our own death. And I think in our culture, it's something that we try to avoid thinking about. So, so I, you know, I think being realistic about the fact that I did do a lot of damage to my body and that, that the life expectancy for football players is, I think, 57 years old. I think so not resisting, I think, is, is important. Because if we think of dis-ease, a lack of ease, right, it's about resistance. And so... I think having a perspective that, you know, whatever comes is, is 
what's coming to me and I and how do I put my mind in a place where I'm ready to make the most of it. That helps. And then I think the fact that I've studied Ayurveda and I've studied Chinese medicine is yeah, I know that if my knee is hurting, you know, I, I know I can I went to massage therapy school. I can use my own hands to help open things up. I can grab my acupuncture needles and I know where to put them. And so I've educated myself um, to be able to be aware of my body, listen to my body and actually know what to do uh, as my body feels uh, it's getting out of balance. And also, I think because I've studied Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, I have more, I have different perspectives. I have different ways to view the body than just the Western medical uh, viewpoint that tells us you played football, you have 99.9% brain damage. Uh, here's some pills. Good luck. What has provided you the most healing? You've got a dark sense of humor. You've got look at how amused you are with yourself. You you do have a comfort around death that is unusual. You have to admit that. Oh yes, I do. I do. But it doesn't have to be unusual, right? This is our conditioning to be afraid of death. To not fear death ranks very high on things that are unusual about you. Again, like yeah, I watched a show. I watched a show I love called. Maybe I was a Viking in a past life, but this is the show on History Channel called Vikings in, in a culture that's built on war. Right. They had an extremely healthy relationship with death that if they died in battle, they were going to heaven. Like, I like that. You know that I, <laughs> I resonate with that. I'm not going to define healing for you. What has provided you the most healing? I'd say my um, my marriage, my relationship. You know, I, I think. You know, you know, it's it's funny that, you know, people and even me, I, I call myself a healer. And I don't mean that I like fix people or I make people better, but it acknowledges that for us to truly heal, to feel whole, it seems like it requires a witness. It requires someone else to to see us as whole, right? To see the best in us so that that's reflected back to us. And I, and I think, you know, my wife, Linnea, is, is, has done a wonderful job of that. And, and so I feel whole. When, when I'm around her and, and that reflection allows me to um, to embody that more and more. How? How it's, you know, it's, it's, it's this, this so I, when I think of relationship, I, the word that comes to mind is complementarity, right? Complementarity where, you know, someone represents parts of yourself that you reject, but you care about them so much that you feel safe to, you know, invite those parts of yourself back through the other person. And so I, you know, I remember, you know, coming out of my first marriage uh, and, you know, getting into this new relationship and, you know, one that I, I valued and I actually wanted to be different, but I had these old habits. Okay. And in the nature of, you know, this situation, those old habits are going to manifest in this new environment and how the new environment handles the old habits determines whether those old habits change or they keep going, right? And so I remember Linnea went out of town. Uh, she went to India for a for a yoga retreat, and it was you know the first time in our relationship where she was gone and I was by myself. When the cat is away, the mice will play. And you know the old habit was to pick up the phone and start you know start sending text messages. And you know I I went down that path and I you know almost went there, but I stopped myself. Okay. And I was feeling good. I was feeling proud. 
whew, you know? <laughs> and so Lenea gets back and of course, I think it was, she was going through, I'm telling you, iCloud has gotten a lot of people in trouble. So she was going through, um, through an old computer and she found old text messages. And so she was seeing how I had reached out to other people when she was out of town. And so she brought it up and it was like this moment of, okay, like what, what do I do? You know? And, and then the, the old me is like, lie, 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 you know, <laughs> don't confess. But there was a voice that was saying, just be honest. Right. And when I just went to be honest, words came out of my mouth that surprised me. I was like, Oh, I didn't know that's, that's how I really felt, but they came out and, and, and it was, we, we connected and we, the relationship became deeper and it didn't move in that other dark direction. So moments like that. Which of your belief systems have been most altered? Like if we go and start ticking through these on things Ricky Williams thought he knew and ha ha ha, what a fool Ricky Williams was because he had to do some learning. Like what are some things that have been turned upside down for you? We've covered the idea that, yeah, football as a destination for achievement of the soul or for feeding the soul wasn't very very much in terms of I think the biggest belief system that that is you know really turned on its head is that I was inferior in any way and I think once I stopped believing that my life became a lot more interesting uh, more expansive more exciting more vibrant why would you have believed you were inferior <laughs> is that a serious question yeah why wouldn't that be a serious question like why would you what are the things that made you believe that you were inferior well Okay, and I'm sure you can relate to this on some level, but I grew up in America as an African American male, and so pretty much everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's why you were laughing. At my <laughs> except, except, except that I, except sports, except sports. That was one place I was not abused. <laughs> okay, okay, so you were. All right, you you realized there that okay. And I could just sing, so so ah, that was I was allowed to be superior there, but I, ugh, I couldn't do it. Can't do it. Okay, so you you discovered when and how. Man, the black experience, Ricky, was so unusual for you because I remember one of the first conversations we had growing up in San Diego. You were saying I was uh, too white for my black friends and too black for my white friends, and so I never fit anywhere. I was that's where I started being the weirdo. Yeah, it started it started early, and I mean, I felt like what how was that my fault? What did what did I do? I just was being me. I just was showing up. I just was being me. But yeah, so I, I like I said, I got used to being the outsider. Uh, eventually, I got tired of it and then went to find my people. And there are other weird, strange people. And they helped me feel empowered to be more myself. And I feel like that's a gift that I, I feel compelled to share with other people is empowering other people to be yourself. It's so much more fun. And it's funny, you know, I had, had an interview um, with Donnie Deutsch. And cool guy, really, you know, interesting, cool guy. And we were talking and he, and he asked a question about, you know, he said, being yourself. And he said, you know, verse, right, the rules and strictures that are put on you. And to me, I was like, he just made up that it has to be against each other. You know, that it's a, that if you're being yourself, that it means that you're doing something bad to other people. Right. This idea of selfishness as a, as a negative thing. Okay. And in my solution, because, you know, we've you and I have had a lot of conversations about my astronomical selfishness. 
<laughs> have I used that word? Is that my word? Astro- astronomical selfishness? You probably had a fancier word, but probably that meant something <laughs> similar. <laughs> but that, but that, that, for me, the solution was to expand my definition of me, right? That me is not just my feelings and how I, right? That me is larger than that, right? Me is that oneness, my connection to, to all things. So at least I have the sense or awareness that, yes, when I make choices, that these choices are going to affect a lot of people. What does marijuana do for you? Um, what does marijuana do for me? Yeah, I think that's this is what marijuana does is it alters my it alters my state of mind. So it allows me to look at things from from a, a different perspective. You know, I feel like when we're when we're kids from the time we're born, really until we're teenagers, it's, you know, our parents and society's systems are literally hardwired into us, you know, and I think specifically my generation, you know, what was hardwired into us is that altered states were bad or a negative thing. And, and so, uh, you know, for me, when I consume cannabis, it's, it's, it's reversing that, you know, it's, it's allowing me to appreciate the value of looking at things from that more expansive perspective. It's the same thing that um, a meditation does for me. You know, it's the same thing that astrology does for me. You know, these, these are, these all serve the same purpose in my life. Take us through meditation, Ricky. Take us through what you learn. Take us through where you practice. Take us through where this journey led in terms of figuring out the importance of stillness of the mind. Yeah. So the first first time that I really found meditation was when I started studying Ayurveda. And my teacher, Dr. Halpern, we'd start every day in class with a five-minute meditation. And it was just simple, you know, so hum, like following our breath. And I just thought it was a nice way to, to clear my mind. And I thought it was cool, you know, but I didn't didn't know too much about it. And then I, uh, after taking a yoga class, and we end the yoga class in Shavasana, our final relaxation. And I remember I, I took a class and I experienced this level of, like, peace and stillness that, that I had never experienced in my entire life except maybe, you know, in the zone in a football game. Um, and so I, I went up to the yoga teacher and I said, you know, whatever that, whatever that was, you need to tell me how I can get how I can get more of that. And he said, we have a yoga ashram just 20 minutes down the road. And so that next day I woke up in the morning and I drove to the yoga ashram and I learned there that they start every day with 30 minutes of meditation. And first I was like, 30 minutes? <laughs> But but after I started doing it, I really started to enjoy it. And, and uh, you know, the, the one moment that sticks in my head is, is sitting in meditation. And the whole point of meditation, at least this form of meditation, is we, you, you bring your mind to one point of focus, right? Because typically the mind is jumping around, going to the past, to the present, the future. It's just going everywhere. And meditation, it's it's one pointed focus, right? And it's, it happens also when we're, you know, we get lost or we get in the zone or we're doing something, right? That's because we're focused on one thing. And so our, the rays of our mind, instead of being scattered, come to this one point of focus. So that's the first stage of meditation. And the next stage is like from that one point of focus, you can experience a level of transcendence. And those are those those places in deep meditation where you you don't even feel your body anymore. You just identify a space. Okay. 
And, and the idea is, is to have this experience of what our true nature is. And, and after having these experiences in meditation, started to be able to recognize that, that place of pure space, you know, more, more often throughout my life. In, in those places of pure space, you know, all of the tension and the drama, it dissolves, right? And there's some clear, there's clarity and perspective, right? And in the in a more practical sense, I remember, and this is how it works. I remember sitting in meditation and being at that one point, that, that place of the observer, right? And as the observer, you can see the mind and you can see how the mind works. And I remember all of these thoughts going through my mind and being able to observe those thoughts, I was able to say, wow, that's really how I look at things, you know? But when I was so entrenched and functioning in them, I couldn't see them. But in meditation, as the observer, I could see them. And then when I was in my life, you know, later that day, I'd be in a situation and that same belief system would come up and I'd be able to recognize it now and be like, that's not me, right? Because me, what the observer, that's not me. And I was able to let it go, change it and allow a more empowering belief system to come and take its place. I mean, that's consciousness. That's learning. That's what you just defined, correct? Well, yeah, that's conscious. That is consciousness. And I, I would call it spiritual learning or learning your true nature, which is spirit. I can't believe that the only thing that you associate with the stillness of the mind is the zone in football, which seems like the single most chaotic place that you can possibly arrive at that kind of stillness. It doesn't even, it doesn't even sound like it makes sense. Yeah. But it's really this, when the mind is one pointed, right? That's stillness and this idea. That's why when you're feeling hectic or chaotic, if you spend five minutes just taking deep breaths where you have to focus on your breath, it calms you down. It brings you back to center. Is that what you were chasing in football? Like when were the times that you felt that zone? Is that what makes the running through all the pain? Like as a metaphor for life, running through all the pain so that you can arrive in the spiritual zone where you feel blissfully free and excellent and loving yourself and one with the universe? Well, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting. I, I think this idea of love, I think of it as love. And there's two types of love, right? There's the love that's something that's familiar, right? And you, you enter the zone because it's so familiar that it doesn't require any of the mind. So the mind can rest because, right? the familiar. And for me, that's what playing sports represented is when I was in that activated state, uh, I was so I was so familiar to that functioning that way, that it was easy to be one pointed. But there, there's also the kind of love that it's unfamiliar, and you love the challenge of it. And so the challenge of engaging in something puts you in a in one pointed state. Uh, and I think there was some of that in football, but I think as I, you know, shifted my focus to spirituality, to astrology and to healing, that it, it embodies more of that, that challenging type of love. And, and so now my life is one where I, I can enter the zone, but in a way that leads to growth and not, you know, tearing up my, my poor little body. What do you regard as the times in the zone in football? Like, are these periods that are too brief or like it can be from play to play? So it's not like that. It's not like a zone of excellence. It's just a zone of being locked in in the present moment is what you're talking about. So if I'm asking you a, a number of times that you achieve this state, it would be many. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a good point. I think there's there's different varieties. There's that there's. To some extent, there's that zone that I achieve in practice, right, where it's hot outside and it's like, oh, there's 
two hours of this. And the next thing I know, I'm walking off the field sweating, you know, feeling good about what I did in practice, right? So um, there's there's that level of of focus and being in the zone. But there's also, you know, when it's for a whole game, and the game that keeps coming to mind is uh, 2002 Monday night against the Bears. I ran for, I think, 216 yards. And it was just one of those things where every time I touched the ball, everything slowed down and everything I did was like it's like a video game. I just was so like in in the zone and that back to back 200 yard games, that was a zone that lasted two weeks. And so I think sometimes, you know, you see people have amazing seasons, right? That's when the zone lasted the whole season. You look at Tom Brady and the Patriots, I mean, in the in the Bucks through the playoffs this year, that team was in the zone. So I, I think some, you know, I think the idea, right, is as you move into being older and older that you live you live in the zone that you found that thing that challenges you that you can be so focused in and i'm sure when you're when you're doing what you're doing when you're talking to people that that you have you know that same experience what have you learned about the mind i learned that you know if, if you don't get a hold of your mind that your mind will definitely get a hold of you and it's one of those things where you're the you're the the captor and the captive and so it's this you know and I, and I think the, the most insidious way this shows up is the way we, we justify our dysfunction. <laughs> Don't justify your dysfunction, okay? <laughs> That's did, what I've learned about the mind. Why did that make you laugh? Just because, uh, yeah, I'm not sure why that makes you laugh like that. Uh, it makes me laugh because of how much, you know, how much we do it. You know, the, the idea that being wrong or... or not being good enough, you know, we're so sensitive to that, that instead of dealing with that and seeing, okay, this is where I can grow. This is where I can evolve. This is where I can feel good about overcoming and meeting challenges. You know, we go to justification to protect our sore spots. Have you learned to be gentle with yourself? No, 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 no. I think <laughs> I wouldn't say that people need to learn to be gentle with themselves. I would say people need to learn how to handle themselves because for some people being gentle doesn't work. For some people being hard doesn't work. You just got to find what works for you. And I've noticed for me, being hard on myself works for me, but it doesn't work so much for other people. <laughs> and so I learned to be hard on myself. And then I learned people that don't like, you know, me to be hard on them. That I just, you know, just more superficial with them. Oh, that works for you is what you're saying. That being hard, being hard on yourself is uh, judging yourself harshly is not a negative. It can help you reach for excellence because. But it's not. It's not judgment. It's it to me. It's the way that um, that an artist approaches their craft. Right. Is it's not. They're not beating themselves up. But it feels good to improve. It feels good to get better. And so. It's not beating, you know, and I learned this as a, as a football player. I had to get over it pretty quickly. I learned that after practice, you know, the coach says, all you guys come in this room and we're going to watch every step you just took for the last hour and a half, okay? And they make corrections. And so I, I realized that, cool, this is going to make me better. And so when I say hard on myself, it's just I don't let myself slide. I don't let myself get away with things, you know? That's bullshit. Oh, yeah, okay, that's bullshit. It's not cool to treat people that way. It's not cool to treat myself that way, you know? 
What are you trying to do with the podcast? Curious questions. You are somebody who is unrelentingly curious. And so what is it? How did it come to be? And what do you want it to be? Yes. So curious questions. I came to be as I, I, you know, I've been thinking about getting into the podcast game, but kind of wrestling with, you know, feeling comfortable talking about the things that are actually important to me, you know, to me. So I think it's important if you have a podcast to share your perspective. And I felt like most of my life I had hidden my perspective because I felt it was too radical. And so part of it is challenging myself to to be myself in a, in a very public way and talk about the things that are interesting to me. And the thing that I'm most interested in is astrology. And so, you know, the idea is bringing all of me to the podcast. And, you know, that's my depth. Um, that's my breath. Uh, and it's also the fact that I was a, you know, a professional athlete. And so what I'm trying to do is, is I look at a chart and I look at the chart and I see, okay, what jumps out to me, what piques my curiosity and try to uncover some answers with, with the, with the interviews. And what I've learned is, you know, my natural state is I, I tend to, to look for deeper patterns in, in understanding. And so and celebrities aren't always the most forthright people in, in kind of sharing their inner life. And so it's been interesting trying to find that balance of being authentic and trying to coach people into those conversations, but also respecting respecting their boundaries. How did you and what I'd like this to become is is a safe place for people to reveal their soul? Because I think again, true healing, transformation, growth, meeting, reaching our full potential. Um, only comes when our soul feels safe enough to come out. Always nice talking to you, Ricky. We should do it more often. Yeah, I'd like that. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start, same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo. The tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.